that God has given us to live lives worthy of His calling. I believe these are very foundational messages for us as believers. So if you are going to be out of town next week or you know someone who's out of town this week, I encourage you to listen to the messages on our website. We're in the process of getting a new website. Uh, RossCommon.cc is our website and all the messages are on there. Or if you'd rather read them, let me know and I can email you out the sermons as well. Um, um, but I encourage you, because I believe these are good foundational messages for us to continue to build on. I'm about to begin my 28th year of teaching school. Even though I'm starting a brand new job and a new school and a new classroom, there's still some elements that, about starting a new job and a, a, a teaching that are universally the same. And I know there's a lot of teachers out here, retired teachers, um, and I think you can relate to this. But one of the elements is that's the same is setting up boundaries by going over classroom rules. It's this time-tested necessity that sets the course for a successful year. In so doing, it acknowledges the authority in the classroom, it communicates clear expectations for everyone, and it keeps everyone safe and continuing to grow. So when I teach, I have three main rules. They are respect yourself. The way that you respect yourself is by always giving your best effort, by being on time, and by coming prepared to class. The second rule is to respect others. That's the way that we respect others in our classroom is to raise your hand to speak and to use encouraging words. The third rule is to respect property by taking care of materials in the classroom and the school and treating other people's belongings with respect. If this is kind of giving any of you the little shakes because you remind you're back at school, don't worry, you're not going to school today. <laughs> but we're glad you're here. See, when students know the rules by heart and they understand what they mean, respect is maintained for all. And the classroom is set on a trajectory for success. And when poor choices are made, and it happens as part of the learning experience, we all make mistakes, we all make choices. When poor choices are made, students don't need a lecture you don't need to shame them on what they've done wrong. They just need a reminder of the standard that was set, which exists to keep everyone safe and protect the sanctity of the classroom. You see, when basic rules become ingrained in students, they serve as daily reminders to keep them on the right path, to gracefully hold them accountable, and to respect the needs of the classroom community. In addition to classroom rules, there's also responsibilities or tasks assigned to students on a rotating basis to give them ownership of the purpose in the room. When everyone works together with purpose and abiding by the rules, the classroom environment is a beautiful place where learning is cultivated and students feel safe to take risks and ask questions and grow. In our classroom of life, God has taken great care to give us responsibilities and to set the standard through basic rules as well. In fact, that's how God started the human assignment from the very beginning. Genesis 2.15, right after God created a man, He said, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. See, the first thing that God did after creating man was to put him into the garden and give him something to do. He gave him responsibilities to take care of all that he had given him. 
When we have purpose, and when we know our purpose, we become more focused and fulfilled. When we communicate regularly with God, who gives us our purpose, we are less likely to be distracted and give in to the temptation and wander off task. Verse 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Giving man responsibilities to keep, God set the boundaries in this new environment. Not only did God clearly state the rules, He also gave the consequences for breaking the rules. And the consequences were severe. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now God was speaking of a spiritual death. When Adam and Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, they broke the communion they had with God. Authority was rejected. Trust was severed. And their environment was no longer a safe place to remain. Because God is perfect, He cannot have sin in His presence, and so He had to enact a consequence of sending Adam and Eve out of the garden and into the world. Their choice to disobey had given birth to what is called a sin nature, which we all inherit when we are born into this world. It is this sin nature inside of each of us that gives us a propensity to break the rules into sin. You know what I mean? You tell a kid not to do something, as soon as you walk out of the room, he does it. We do it. It's, it's, it's that sin nature in us, that propensity to, to break the rules that God has set up. In God's attempt to keep His people safe, He would continue to set up His earthly classroom with clear and concise rules and responsibilities. Through Moses, God gave the law to His people. It was complex. In fact, it was 613 specific instructions. I give three to my kids. God gave 613 specific instructions in His law to keep people untainted from the world and to remain holy before God. And to highlight the main points, God gave them ten commandments to live by, which were clear and concise. Exodus 24.3, we pick it up where God has given the whole law to Moses. Moses comes down and shares it with the people. And this is where we pick up Exodus 24, verse 3. It says, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. At first glance, it may seem like a proper response from the people. But not when you consider it a little more deeply like we're going to today. All the, Lord, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. See, the first problem was that they answered too quickly without understanding all that was being asked of them. Moses didn't just share the laws of God, he shared the judgments too. Yet the truth of human nature is that we too often try to avoid any feeling of being uncomfortable for too long. And we want to skip right to the peaceful feelings. For example, it's like a student that gets caught because they're picking on someone else. As soon as they get caught, they want to apologize right away because they want to avoid any feeling of, 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 of feeling uncomfortable without having to feel the pain of being in trouble. 
However, the way to reduce chances of this from happening again is to allow the victim of the teasing to share how it felt to them. To talk with the class how that judgment can affect the sanctity of the unity in the classroom. It's only when we fully understand how the consequences of our actions affect others and disrupt the community in which we live that we truly make a concerted effort to respect the rules because we value our unity. If you apply this to your own life, you begin to understand the truth of repentance. It's more than just saying you're sorry to God. It's more than just confessing your sins because you did something wrong and you got caught. It's taking the time to understand that your choice to sin hurt your relationship between you and God and often between you and others. It's taking the time to feel the loss and realizing the choices you made which caused this rift in unity. You see that it, it doesn't happen in the world today because there's this thing called political correctness that we can't make people feel bad. But if we don't understand what we did, we'll continue to perpetuate that same thing. That's what repentance is. It's not just quickly coming to God and confessing. It's understanding that we hurt something that God gave us. Not to, not to shame us, but to understand the consequences of our actions. Pain and true sorrow of heart are powerful ways to deter an action from recurring. If we rush to apologize simply because we don't want to feel uncomfortable, we do ourselves and others no favors. For too long, repentance has been misunderstood as just confessing our sins. It's much more than that. Repentance is responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to make things right with God and to make things right with others. And how many know that takes a lot of hard work? Yeah? But Acts 3.19 gives us this promise. And Acts chapter 3, verse 19 says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, repentance is being moved by the sorrow of heart experienced when we realize that we've hurt others and that we've disobeyed God with our sin. And in response, we humbly come before God admitting that we are wrong and ask God for grace and mercy and forgiveness in order to be to be restored to right standing with God. Well, there's one more thing with the Israelites' response. They said, all the, word, all the words which the Lord has commanded, we will do. Did you catch it? They took it for granted that they could simply override their sinful nature to follow the law on their own without any help from God. How often do we do the same thing? We must be ever aware of this sinful nature. Often it's referred to as our flesh, that, which is at work in each one of us. And because of this, we must ask for daily help from God to be able to follow all that he's commanded us to do so that we remain safe in his earthly classroom. In fact, Jesus gave us a, a, a manner, a how-to, how to do this. How to stay dependent upon God. How to always ask Him for help so we're not like when we did our Bible verse today. We're not relying on our own strength, or our own might, but relying on the Spirit of God. He gave us a, a pattern of how to do this on a, on a daily basis. 
in what was given as an excellent instruction in how to remain daily dependent upon God and keep our focus on Him and His love and His will and His guidance, it has too often become something that's simply just recited instead of followed step by step and lived out daily. The instruction that I'm referring to that's in our Bibles that we're very familiar with is what has been called the Lord's Prayer. And while it is indeed a beautiful prayer, and we say it every Sunday here, while it's indeed a beautiful prayer to speak to the Lord, many times we fail to gain the full benefit of Jesus' intentions if we're not taking each aspect to understand why he taught it. When Jesus began teaching on prayer, he emphasized how we should approach God and talk with him, how we should commune with him and bring our will into daily alignment with his. Contrary to popular belief, Jesus did not say, this is what you should say when you pray. He said, this is how you should pray. In other words, he gives us a lesson plan on how to approach God in any type of prayer. Matthew 6, verse 8, says, For your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. Now the Lord's Prayer is a powerful prayer and a beautiful prayer. But I will also say that there's one verse right before the Lord's Prayer and one verse right after the Lord's Prayer that are incredibly powerful truths that I want us to understand. Um, But this first one comes right before um, the traditional recitation of the Lord's Prayer. It's absolutely essential in setting the stage for how we approach God. You see, without acknowledging this truth before we pray that God knows what we need even before we ask, without acknowledging that truth, Many times people, or we all have a tendency to go to God with lists of things that we either need or desire for ourselves or for others. Yet if we really believe Jesus at his word here, it would change the way that many people commune with God. Knowing that he already needs us, we still ask, but knowing that he already needs, knows what we need, we're not begging him. We're coming to him like a child coming to his father or her father. Matthew 6, verse 9, says, In this manner, Jesus begins, In this manner, therefore, pray. Okay, In this manner. Or rather, this is how to pray to God. The first topic we focus on is God, who is our Father. This acknowledgement reminds us that we belong to Him. We are His children. He longs to hear from us and spend undivided quality time with us. With this understanding, we should never rush through prayer and we should make sure our attention is not divided as we talk to our Heavenly Father and Eternal Lord. Our Father in Heaven reminds us where God is and the perspective that He has from His, where He sits in His kingdom. He has total authority and total power from where He sits on high. By respecting this truth, we recognize His sovereignty. His sovereignty, which means this, that no matter what happens to us on this earth, no matter what we go through, no matter what happens in the news, God is still sitting on the throne. There's times when I'm driving into work and I'm praying with my eyes open, and I'm, and I'm praying and, and, and I look up at the sky and I think God's up there. He sees all that's happening in our, in our small lives, even when we think it's huge, and to us it is, But God says, I see it and I know you and I know what I've empowered you to do. 
Will you trust me through the difficult times? Our Father in heaven, God sees it all. He's just asking us to continue to trust Him. Regardless of what we go through, He is our Father in heaven. He's still on the throne. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Hallowed is a word that we seldom use today. It's best translated as, may your name be honored and kept holy. This is one part of the how to approach God that we really need to understand. In Jewish law, the name God could not be spoken. In Hebrew, it is spelled Y-H-W-H and pronounced as individual letters. yod Hey wah Hey. Later, translators added vowels and changed some of the letters to pronounce it as Yahweh or as Jehovah. In fact, there's a tradition that his name was heard but once a year when it was uttered by the high priest on the great day of atonement. Indeed, his name was hallowed and revered. And his name was given the greatest honor in all the Israelites' endeavors. Does anybody know why the temple was built in Israel? I think you may be surprised. Let's, uh, 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 5 tells us, And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build a house for my name. God's name was given so much reverence, so much authority, so much trust, the temple was built for a place for God's name. The temple held the glory and the honor of the name of the Lord. It was not a trite saying that there is power in the name of the Lord. For His name was consecrated or set apart and honored through the building of the temple. Indeed, among the true worshipers of God, His most sacred name was revered. But what does that mean for us? Since we're no longer under the law of Moses. You see, it's not about avoiding His name, but rather about keeping His name reverent and preventing it from just being a commonplace word that we say when we're shocked or upset. Too often we see the OMG. These phrases and curse words with the name of the Lord. All, when we see that it takes all the reverence out of God's name today. Let me ask you a question. This is just hypothetical. What if God were to say, you can use my name, but every time you say my name, it's going to cost you $10. What do you think we would do? Well, some people might quit using it because it's too hard to find $10. But I think other people, once they realize the power of his name, they would be careful that they didn't throw it out in the OMG and the curse words, if I can only use it, I have so much to spend on it, I'm going to be very careful I can use God's name. And in fact, I'm going to work even harder to get more so I can pay to use God's name. Now, it's not happening. And I'm not saying it should happen, but... but what has happened today is we have lost the sanctity of God's name. We have not treasured His name. There is power in His name. Every time we say, 
Jesus, there is power in His name. Every time we call out, my Lord, there is power in His name. We need to make sure we revere His name for the power in His name, for the power in the blood of Jesus, for God's presence. There is power in His name. When when God asks us to pray in His name, it's not just a little tagline we put at the end of His prayer. We believe that when we say, God, may Your will be done, we actually believe it. God is asking us, even when we begin the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. It's not just a recitation. It's something that we believe in. When we go to God in power and in unity, then it gets God's attention. That's the sound that's sweet to his ear. The first lesson we gain in approaching God in prayer is realizing the power of his name. You see, if you have a weaker weapon, you have to use more effort and more strength and skill when using it. But with a stronger weapon, it doesn't take your effort. It just only takes your faith to believe and to understand the true power of that weapon. Hallowed be your name. It not only praises God, but it reminds us that we have the strongest weapons in our hands. That's prayer. In God's name and in His mighty name. I want to encourage you when you go to prayer and call upon the name of God, because we can that there's power in that name. When Jesus died on the cross, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, something really powerful happened. The curtain ripped. And it ripped from the top down, which meant God was saying, I'm going to rip this so you can still come to me at any time now. Before, only the high priest could go to the Holy of Holies to access God. But because of that, because Jesus died for us, we can access God. We don't have to avoid His name, but we should come humbly before God to acknowledge the power in His name. And I don't know about you, but when I came to God, my life was a mess. I was in sin and I was trying to struggle, break out of it on my own. I couldn't do it. So when I came to God and I cried out to God and God said to me, I love you. I forgive you. No matter what you have done, I love you. To me, it broke so many things in my life. And that's the message that we share with people. We're not trying to condemn them or judge them. There are people who are stuck in that darkness and Jesus said, I came into this world that you should not have to abide in the darkness. God asks us to be the light, to share the light without judgment, to call upon the name of God, the name above every name. That's what we're here for today. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for moving in each one of our hearts. We thank You to give a hunger to want more of You. Lord God, You know where we're at. We pray that You would speak to each one of us and help us to understand that when we call upon Your name, there is power in Your name. Let us not take that lightly. Let us know who we are approaching and the power that is available to us who believe in the power of Your name and the love of Your heart. May You bless us as we continue to seek You in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.